2: For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. In the
3: film The Conversation, Gene Hackman plays Harry Call, who's a surveillance expert who has a talent and he also has a compulsion for eavesdropping.
0: These new microphones
4: are just incredible. They really I, I couldn't really believe it myself. We were over 200 yards away. We, it was absolutely readable. I, I, I broke in a couple of newsreel cameramen.
3: Harry Call is and, a little uh, paranoid. But on the other hand, when you consider the fragments of well, conversation that he's the picking the up, that paranoia seems justified to me, mouth. and probably to you too if you've seen the film. Now, we turn to this character because essentially he's a hacker. You? I mean, he hacks into conversations. Well, he uses hey, a big service. paraboloid microphone and some other high-tech stuff he gets these fragments of conversation, he teases them apart, and then he tries to make sense of them.
4: supposed to tease me, give me hints, make me guess, you know.
3: And it's fitting that we've drawn inspiration from this character because it's advanced technology that allows us to do something similar, but rather more remarkable, really, to tap into DNA, to tinker with it, to decode it. So we bring you
2: Gene Hack
3: Man from Big Picture Science. I'm Seth Shostak.
2: I'm Molly Bentley. Well, we'll hear about gene tinkering, the promise it holds, and some scenarios that, quite frankly, sound like science fiction.
3: Meanwhile, we also look at machines and hacking into them. Just how easy is it to do that?
2: since the human genome was sequenced more than a decade ago species after species have been in line waiting the decoding of their genome and many of them have had their genomes decoded but we're not yet done with humans now it's been one thing to map out the list of the nucleotides
3: c a u g c c a a u G U C A. what do those sequences mean anyway? A-U-G-A-C-U-A-M. Learning to read the DNA A-U-G-U-C-A-M. code has been the work of geneticists and genomicists for the past decade. C-A-C-A-C-A-M. Is there a genetic A-U-G-A-M. marker, a genetic coding, if you will, for baldness? Well, actually, there is for that one. And, and having found the genes implicated in some serious disease, could we ever heal ourselves before symptoms strike?
2: Microbiologist and geneticist George Weinstock has been instrumental in this work for years. Before becoming associate director at the Washington University Genome Institute in St. Louis, he was co-director of the Human Genome Sequencing Center at Baylor College in Houston, Texas. In addition to his work on human genomes there, he helped produce sequences for, among other animals, the rat, the mouse, the macaque, the sea urchin, and the honeybee.
3: He's now thinking about hominids again with a Thousand Genomes Project, whose goal is to sample enough human genomes that we can begin to understand what makes us different from one another. And also thinking about sequencing the microbes that live on humans with the Human Microbiome Project, the Microbiome Project and the Thousand Genomes Project. And as often happens with dedicated scientists, his team is already surpassing its
1: goal. Can I stop now?
5: It's called the 1,000 Genome Project, but actually we're shooting for more like 2,500 genomes before it's all said and done in the coming year. Are you Uh, going to
2: rename the project then?
5: No, I hope not. There's something catchy about the 1,000 Genome Project, so everybody likes that. I think that when we sequenced the original human genome, the reference genome, this was never meant to be the final answer because we know that every one of us is different. Every one of us differs in about one out of a thousand letters from each other. And so having had that one reference genome sequence of the human genome, the next question is, what are all the variants in it? What's different about you and me and all the other people that make us the way we are? What are the differences that cause disease in some people and not others? What are the differences that have to do with different locations on the planet, different ethnicities, different uh, geographical histories, all kinds of things like that. There's just an enormous amount to learn, both about medicine, but also about the history of humans by looking at their genes and looking at their genomes and, and looking at their variants.
2: Now, when when I first met you, um, we have spoken before, and when I did, you had just helped with the sequencing of the sea urchin genome, and this was one animal in a long list of animals whose genomes were up for sequencing, and I believe the dolphin was next. Uh, Did the dolphin ever get its genome sequenced? And can you give me an idea of just some of the other animals whose genomes we now have mapped out? And I know that we compare a lot of those animals to, to the human animal, but do we also compare those animals to each other to understand some diversity in the animal kingdom?
5: Well, the dolphin genome has not yet been published. The data is there, and it's being analyzed. We're also now in Washington University sequencing the whale, which is a close relative of the dolphin. And interestingly, both dolphins and whales are very closely related to the cow, which we also sequenced at Baylor. And so there will be a fascinating analysis that I'm sure will turn up all kinds of wonderful things about how genomes that are so close together as the dolphin, the whale, and the cow lead to some guys who walk around on hoofs on the land and others who swim in the ocean. So we're really looking forward to that analysis. And that's exactly the kind of comparative genomics that you're talking about. And it's not just the the three animals I mentioned are mammals. There's many other mammals that have been sequenced, Um, many primates, monkeys, and apes. The horse has been sequenced, the dog has been sequenced, the cat has been sequenced, many, many mammals. But then the sea urchin, which is uh, distantly related to mammals, believe it or not, but represents a different clade in the tree of life, and on and on it goes. And of course, in the microbial world, in which the number of different species just dwarfs the animal world, there are literally thousands of different microbes that have been sequenced at this point.
2: Now I know what you've done, you've guided this conversation into one of your favorite subjects which is the human microbiome and you are helping to lead up the Human Microbiome Project. Now this is the idea of sequencing and understanding the vast assortment of microbes that live on us and in us. When I say vast, can you quantify that in any sense? I mean, What are we talking about when we talk about numbers of microbes that are living on the human body?
5: Well, there's all kinds of wonderful statistics about it, but basically you're more microbe than you are human. If you count the number of cells in your body, the number of microbial cells that have colonized you is 10 times the number of human cells that you have.
2: Where are they? Are they on the inside of me? Are they on the outside of my hand here?
5: They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Mm -hmm. We have evolved to, in particular, have certain tissues that... Microbes can colonize in very large amounts, like your mouth and like your gut. Your skin has microbes on it. These are all different environments. Your gut is an environment that doesn't have oxygen. It's what we call anaerobic. Your mouth is an environment that obviously does have oxygen, but it has a, a very different composition in terms of the nutrients that are there and uh, compared to your gut. Your skin is like a desert. There's patches of organisms living there and they get exposed to sort of oily surfaces and they get exposed to the environment to a much greater extent. So you have all these different environments.
2: Are the microbes constantly changing? I mean, do we, are we born and we have one set of microbes and they're with us for the whole ride or do they fall off? And if I can imagine microbes falling off or do they disappear and then another set of microbes takes over? Are they, are they changing?
5: It's a great question. It's one of the mysteries that the Human Microbiome Project is trying to figure out. What is the turnover? What is the dynamics of your microbiome? We know that it's pretty stable. We know that if we look down in the genomes of the microbes that we have and we'd study their variants like I was talking about in the human genome before, I can distinguish your species from my species even though they may be cousins of each other, but just like our two genomes are different the genomes of our two microbes are different if we look at a particular species and that seems to be relatively stable but we also know that if you get sick and you get treated with an antibiotic it's going to wipe out a lot of your microbiome as well as the infecting agents if you get the flu if you get diarrhea if you you know have things like this it's going to cause turmoil in your microbiome and it always comes back And we're now still trying to understand if what comes back is really based on some reservoir of your original microbes or whether you you import new ones all over again. I think it's starting to look like you actually have reservoirs that just expand the population when you need them.
2: But to study the human microbiome, you have to collect some microbes and what do you do? Do you go up to a human subject and scrape from their skin and inside their mouth and their hair? I mean, do you basically have to wipe a human down everywhere (laughs) and then study the residue?
5: That's exactly what we have to do. So for for the Human Microbiome Project, which was as big a project as the Human Genome Project or the 1000 Genome Project in terms of the NIH investment, we recruited 300 subjects who each agreed to come in on two to three visits. And on each of those visits, they were sampled at 15 different body sites if they were a boy and 18 different body sites if they were a girl. So we collected close to 12,000 specimens. Each of those was sequenced in detail so that we could essentially sequence the genomes of all of the microbes in each of those 12,000 communities. And there were a lot of different taxa that were represented there. But in addition to just bacteria, which is what people often think, our microbiome has viruses, our microbiome has fungi and other protists, a real menagerie. And even healthy people we find have on average four or five different types of viruses that they're walking around with even though they don't show any signs of infection. Some people have 15 different types of viruses in them. So we're just laying out the borders of what are all the questions now that we have to follow up and ask. You know, how is it that you can carry such a menagerie without being ill? I mean, that's what makes you healthy, frankly. If you don't have them, you may be out of sorts.
2: Well, it's hard to picture this. And imagine if you could put a fluorescent dye on all of these creatures, the, the viruses and the microbes and so forth, and we could walk around, our entire bodies, it sounds like, would light up with all these different colors.
5: That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Sometimes I think of, uh, you know, the Peanuts character pig pen that walks around with all of that little stuff, carrying around with them all the time. That's sometimes what I think of when I think of our microbiome.
2: (laughs) George Weinstock, thank you so much for talking with us.
5: My pleasure, Molly. George
3: Weinstock is a microbiologist, geneticist, and associate director at the Washington University Genome Institute in St. Louis. Okay, all those genes... All those microbes with genes that we carry within us. I mean, that's a lot of encoded information working together to make Homo sapiens the evolved, sophisticated, bipedal, smartphone-toting and endlessly tweeting animal that we are. The number of bits is impressive, but don't be too smug, because we're not the winner in the gene wars. At least one living organism has been dealt a larger hand.
2: Gary, hi. Hi. I'm going to hand something to you, and I want you to identify this object.
1: Okay. Okay, so you handed me a tomato.
2: Exactly.
3: Yep, you've been outnumbered by the tomato.
2: Now, we know this because the tomato is the latest in that long list of organisms, some of which we heard mentioned earlier, to be sequenced. And involved in that sequencing was Cornell University plant molecular biologist Jim hey, Givinoni. So we called him up, and we seem to have interrupted his leisurely the reading, reading of the of annual the review of, of genetics.
6: Novel enhancer sequences to evolve outside this high gene density context.
2: But we needed to know just what is it that a tomato can, can do above. that we can't?
3: Jim, the genes of the tomato plant have been sequenced. Big news for my little ruddy buddies there in the market. But it turns out that this root seems to have more genes in its genome than humans do. What gives? Well, that's true.
6: Uh, the genome was sequenced and reported in the last year. There are about 35,000 genes in tomato and probably five to 7,000 less in the human genome. And at first that maybe seems a little uh, unusual given a, a human seems to be more complex than a plant. But the fact is a plant has to deal with the fact that it can't move. Uh, The typical response of humans to uh, difficult conditions, whether they be uh, environmental or... Possibly even uh, their interpersonal relationships is to move, to get out of the way. Uh, Plants can't do that. So they have to respond genetically more often uh, and in more diverse ways than humans do. So they have more systems to do that.
3: Maybe you could give me some examples of of, of the sorts of things that these genes in the tomato code for. I mean, I can think of obvious things like color and taste, but but what else?
6: Well, some of the genes that we're especially interested in uh, code for, as you mentioned, color flavor components these are the things that a lot of people interested in tomato are actually interested in we're also looking at and have characterized a number of genes that are involved in the overall control of the ripening process in other words what tells the fruit hey i'm a tomato and it's time to go i'm ready to ripen what are the genetic switches that are involved in that and when you think about what a tomato fruit does its purpose is to be eaten. Evolution has developed this fleshy, tasty organ as a way of dispersing the seeds that are contained within. But that fruit has to coordinate that process of becoming very palatable, very attractive with the development of the seed to make sure that seed is ready to be dispersed when the fruit ripens.
3: Now, you know, Homo sapiens goes back, I don't know what, about 200,000 years tomato apparently goes back 60 million years, and they've clearly changed a lot thanks to, well, the intervention of humans, certainly in recent history. I mean, I see heirloom tomatoes at the market that probably only go back 50 or 100 years. I I really don't know. But when you sequence the genes of a tomato, is that a modern tomato? Does it tell you anything about what tomatoes were like, uh, you know, 10 million years ago?
6: That's a good question. The tomato that we sequence. Uh, is a modern uh, tomato variety. Actually, it's a variety developed by uh, the Heinz uh, Corporation, who makes uh, ketchup, as you probably know. But we also sequenced, uh, or the consortium that was involved, sequenced at the same time the wild progenitor of the cultivated tomato. This is a tomato whose scientific name is Solanum pimpinella folium. Some people know of these tomatoes as current tomatoes. And if you look at the wild species, typically what you see that that is different from the cultivated species is they're much smaller fruit. None of them are any bigger than a marble. Uh, Some of them have uh, unusual colors. They can be from uh, kind of dark purple or almost black to orange, yellow, uh, and most of them are green. And some of them are even a little bit hairy as compared to the modern tomato.
3: Now, one of the uh, benefits of having sequenced the tomato, at least from my point of view, is to get a tomato that's not quite as tasteless as what they put on my hamburger at the local fast food outlet. Tomatoes just don't seem to have that luscious taste that they had, you know, even 50 years ago. Why is that? What, what, what happened to the tomatoes?
6: Well, that's you know, that's probably the most common question I get asked, and it's a pretty simple answer. Uh, And it's not just unique to tomatoes. So a lot of what's happened in the last 50 years is breeders have selected more for attributes that are favorable for shipping and long-term storage and not paid so much attention to flavor. There are a couple of mutations in tomato that have been selected for because they slow down the ripening process or, in a second case, because they give the fruit a more uniform color. Uh, and in both cases, they really result in a fruit that's just not as fully ripe but not as flavorful as uh, as the tomatoes that were produced commercially maybe 50 years ago.
3: Okay, so the, the bottom line question is, now that we've sequenced the genome and eventually can recognize what a lot of these genes do, can we hack this genome and produce, you know, a, a tomato that maybe has the shipping durability of tennis balls but that tastes like those older, more flavorful tomatoes? Uh,
6: the short answer is yes. Uh, and this is really where a lot of the breeders and seed companies are focusing now is how can we get back better color? How can we get back more of the, the acids and sugars that give tomato their flavor? And also, how can we get back some of the aroma compounds that give tomato its unique uh, aroma that also contributes to that perception of flavor.
3: Jim Givanoni, thank you so very much for talking with me. A pleasure speaking with you.
2: Jim Giovanoni knows his place behind the plants as a plant molecular biologist at Cornell University.
3: Speaking of hacking, reengineering the tomato is one thing. I, for one, welcome that. But tapping into the president's DNA is another.
2: One man's speculation about a unique national security threat.
3: It's Gene Hack Man on Big Picture Science. It's getting easier to sequence an organism's genome whether it be a tomato plant or a human being or a fruit fly. And by the way, that list is in descending order when it comes to the number of genes.
2: (laughs) That's right. The tomato plant has more genes than a human being, but at least we have more genes than a fruit fly if we need that kind of consolation. Well, the reason it's getting easier to do all this sequencing and to publish routinely the genomes of many different organisms is that the technology has become more sophisticated and the cost has come down. Now, less than a decade ago, sequencing a human genome would cost you tens of thousands of dollars or more.
3: But the price is plummeting. Maybe you're familiar with Moore's Law. That's the blistering rate at which the price of computing power decreases over time. Computing power per dollar doubles every two years. Well, gene sequencing is getting cheaper twice as quickly as that.
2: Less than $1,000 now will buy you a blueprint of your genome, which means it's getting close to being affordable for everyone. And that fact has opened up the field of personalized medicine.
3: So forget the one formulation fits all pharmaceutical model. Personalized medicine considers the lineup of your genes and tailors the treatments accordingly. For example, if you have gene X, Would that mean that for a given treatment that you would respond better to drug Y than you would to, say, drug Z?
2: But here's another thought. If you can use personalized genome data to tailor a therapy to an individual, couldn't you also make a designer pathogen? Andrew
3: Hessel is a journalist and a fellow at the Singularity University, an institution devoted to anticipating issues around emerging technology. He thinks genetic research and
2: personalized medicine have tremendous potential. However... However, in pursuing this amazing technology, we need to face our worst fears about it. In a recent issue of The Atlantic, Andrew Hessel and his colleagues foresee a time, and not all that far off, when a lot of people will have the ability to turn personalized medicine on its head and use it to engineer personalized bioweapons. Anyone could be a target.
3: And not just anyone, anyone. The provocative title of his piece hacking into the president's DNA.
1: The way I usually describe genetics and cell biology so that people understand it is that cells are computers. They're really the most sophisticated computer yet made because they are parallel processors. They're incredibly complex in terms of the machinery. They run on sugar, and they're all programmable by DNA. So DNA is like the operating system and Yes, we are starting to understand this cellular computer and its operating system, its language, DNA. But that doesn't mean that there aren't vulnerabilities, just like with computing.
2: So so give me an idea of what we're talking about here. The 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 story is entitled Hacking the President's DNA. And The premise here is that if you had someone's DNA, it could be anyone's DNA, but in this case you write about the president, we now have the kind of technology that would allow us to decode his DNA and then also work with his cells or anyone's cells. Now, anywhere that the president goes, he leaves some of his genetic material, like we all do, although he shakes a lot more hands than probably any of us do. Can you give me an idea of, of how his daily routine poses a security threat?
1: We point out, rightly as you do, that he shakes a lot of hands. And every time you shake hands, every time you blow your nose, you leave cells that can be picked up by anyone from a Kleenex literally a cigarette butt, any used glass, we can recover the cells from that and sequence the DNA. We can sequence the entire genome of an individual with a few cells.
2: Now, but the cells that, are, that we drop every day are not living. I mean, many of them are just dead cells. Can you sequence the DNA even if the cell itself, the skin cell, is dead?
1: Yes, absolutely. That's the beautiful part about it. You don't need a living cell to extract the DNA and read the code.
2: Now, is it true or is it apocryphal, although you do write about it, that the Secret Service sweeps through the areas where the president has been, let's say it's a hotel room, and grabs all his sheets and his glasses and everything he's touched so they can destroy anything that might have his DNA on it?
1: The Secret Service does not give quotes or describe their procedures. But it's our understanding that, in fact, they do biological sweeps behind the president to remove as much material as possible.
2: Okay, so let's say you have some material from the president. You have some of his DNA. Uh, What what happens next? And, And how do you go from having some DNA and some dead skin cells into creating some kind of weapon that could be used against him?
1: Well, that's a big leap, but just information can be used as a weapon. So, for example, if we have those, if we've recovered some skin cells, we can recover the DNA from that. We can sequence it. And this is not a large job. It can be done in a day. And then we can analyze it to look for information that potentially could be used against them, just even politically. For example, if we found in the president that he he had a gene for early-onset Alzheimer's, or markers for depression, or, or really schizophrenia. Those would be politically quite damaging. After that, you could potentially start thinking about doing genetic engineering that would be harmful.
2: So we have the technology right now to take some DNA and sequence an individual genome.
1: Completely, yes.
2: What is the next step?
1: Well, the next step is, is actually thinking what type of agent you could engineer what you're talking about is doing genetic engineering. And genetic engineering isn't new. We've had genetic engineering for over 40 years now. What is new and what we talk about in the article is that it's getting easier to do genetic engineering because we have technology today that allows us to print DNA. This means we can take digital information for example the, the code that you get from from the president if you sequenced him and finished your analysis. Now you could think about how to actually engineer a biological agent right on your computer and print the genetic code to create that agent. That process is getting faster, cheaper, and easier to do because of the exponential change that we're seeing in genetic technologies.
2: What do you you mean by a biological agent? Do you mean a a virus, or do you mean some microbe?
1: So we're talking synthetic biology, and synthetic biology can be used for engineering any biological structure or organism, theoretically. We're working from the bottom up. We're working with very simple systems and simple organisms.
2: Can you give me an example of the sort of agent that we're talking about? You begin your piece with a a fictional scenario set in the future, but what sort of agent would be administered?
1: I think the agent that is most understandable at this point is just viruses. In fact, we live in a a microbial soup of of bacteria and viruses, and 99.999% of them don't cause us any problem at all. But we do know that the viruses that do harm us, things like flus, are just biological software. So in this article, I surmise that the technology is co-opted, is used by someone to make a virus that will infect almost anyone, but not cause harm. But the core of this engineered virus then would be a switch that would flip if it detected the president's DNA.
2: You know, Andrew, this sounds like science fiction. I mean, it's a wild scenario. In fact, if this were a book, a science fiction book, I would read it, and I'd think it was fantastic. But I wouldn't believe that it could actually happen. But the reason that you and and your co-authors wrote this is you do believe that this technology were on the precipice of malevolent uses of this technology.
1: Actually, it's just because I track the technology of synthetic biology. And part of what we're doing is making switches and control circuits for genetics. So if you have a switch, and we're just talking about a switch where in one setting it's harmless, in the other setting it's harmful, That's pretty low level that technology has already been developed. So I'm just looking at it from the point of view of a hacker that wanted to do something malicious to a single individual.
2: Andrew, when you think and you write about this subject, what part of it keeps you up at night? I mean, what part of it really just churn through your own brain late at night, if that's when your ideas churn?
1: My ideas churn on a lot of things genetic. I don't generally fear the same things people do. I have no fear of microbes or viruses. They are, for the most part, symbiotic with us. And we have this amazing defense system that we call our immune system. If anything, I'm a little afraid that our fears around doing genetic engineering prevent us from moving quickly and understanding and applying these technologies in the world. Just look at it like it was computers. Computers have gone everywhere. And eventually, biotechnology will go everywhere. I would like to stay on the forward edge of this technology and have it bring to the world the economic benefits that we saw in computing. I think this is going to be the next driver of the global economy. And I would hate for us to lag behind because we're afraid of it.
2: Now, you do suggest a solution, um, or at least one solution. And there may be many. The approach that you put forward to national security is to release the very genetic material that we all fear will fall into the wrong hands. So that would be to release the the sequence of the president's DNA and make it a crowdsourcing project. What is your reasoning behind this?
1: Well, really, number one, I think someone's going to publish the president's genome if he doesn't, because it's now under $1,000 to sequence an entire human genome. So virtually anyone that has the smallest sample of a handshake, a cell, any material that's been handled by the president probably already has their DNA in, in their possession. And if they wanted to, could publish this easily. So why not preempt the fallout from that and just publish it? In fact, in the future, I think virtually every president will just publish their genome early in the campaign. By publishing it, it sends the message, I'm not afraid of this technology. And in fact, thousands of people have already open-sourced their genetic material. This is part of the Personal Genome Project. It's fascinating. By publishing this material, you also engage the community to think about how you might actually make defenses for this and people that might be attacking it. So it's really a call to action for the maker community to start thinking about how you solve the problem of a personalized biological attack.
2: Andrew Hessel, thank you very much for speaking with us.
1: Thank you. I really enjoyed this.
3: Andrew Hessel is a faculty member at the Singularity University, a research scientist at Autodesk, and co-author of Hacking the President's DNA in the November 2012 issue of The Atlantic.
2: Now, there's a department in NASA that's devoted to planetary protection, meaning We're mindful that our space missions don't bring biological contamination to other worlds or transport anything nasty back to Earth. If we were to bring back something such as Martian microbes, we'd have to quarantine them first. Although that's a problem that a lot of scientists would love to have, a petri dish of alien life.
3: Dick Kerrigan is worried about alien viruses, but not the biological kind. He's a scientist at Fermi Lab in Illinois and is concerned that the antennas we use for SETI pointed at other star systems in the hope of picking up an extraterrestrial signal may actually pick up a computer virus.
2: Now, there's no mandatory quarantine to protect us from this mother of all malware.
0: The suggestion is that signals might have viral content that would either suggest that the uh, receiver build a decoder that they'd use, sort of like the installation disk on your Word, for example, but that the installation disk would have a virus in it that would do something destructive, cause you to uh, pledge allegiance to the galaxy or whatever. So you're talking about
3: virus software from aliens, really? Is that what you're suggesting here?
0: Yes. One of the things that the SETI community generally feels is that somehow whoever originates a SETI signal will be brighter, and who could disagree with that because they're sending the signal to you, and also altruistic. In other words, that they're going to help you out. Now, uh, you know the famous phrase, I'm from your government and I'm here to help you, Don't believe it. That's not how Darwinian evolution worked. Usually it was, I'm here from your government and I'm going to eat you. That's the fear here.
3: But surely computer types, people who are schooled in computer science, might argue that that would be really difficult for them to do simply because their computers, their software, would be totally unlike ours. Doesn't that suggest that we really don't need to be afraid of alien software
0: viruses? That's a view held almost universally by uh, computer people when this topic's discussed. I find it a little surprising because nearly every group of people I know, there's some contrarian. In this case, there isn't. What you said is what people generally believe. Now to me, the incredulous or incredible thing is that have these people never had their computers hacked? I have my computer hacked all the time. I get the flu all the time. Well, not, not anymore because somebody puts another virus in me or whatever. But in these two examples outside of SETI, hacking is just something you're used to. What sort of dangers, what sort of potential danger could an alien virus pose? What could it possibly do to us? For one thing, you don't know what this alien thing is to begin with. It might be a computer. It may want to uh, basically just have a gigantic computer covering the surface of the Earth doing what its computer does. Now why would, uh, you can ask a a second part of this question, why would it bother? nice feature of radio communication and laser communication is that it goes with the speed of light so if you can get somebody at the receiving end some couch potato to start picking up a SETI signal and doing what you want it to do for example in the spirit of some religions getting ardent followers then you've you've established a beachhead everything will then work toward that the desires of this alien beachhead a potential threat because at this point we don't have a SETI signal. Well, finally then, Dick, how
3: do you suggest that we deal with this potential threat? Should we just stop doing our SETI experiments because if we succeed in finding a signal and it has these malevolent properties,
0: it might be too late? First off, I think talking about it and talking about it in a coherent way is useful. I think that because this computer community is so universally believes that it's not a threat, it's been hard to have sensible discussion, or in my view, sensible discussions about this. So I think talking about it helps to understand it, an academic kind of evaluation of the thing. Another thing that can be done is to try to isolate the computers, put a condom over them, so to speak, so that they don't just reach out into uh, the world without some sort of a barrier before people uh, talk that can lessen the impact of a hacking signal coming in. Dick Kerrigan, thank you so much for talking with me. Good to talk to you, Seth. Dick
2: Kerrigan is a scientist emeritus at Fermilab in Illinois. You know, we've been discussing uh, tapping into genomes of living organisms and also hacking into computers and so forth and, and some of the problems this might bring. Are these unique problems to these this technology, do you think, Seth?
3: Well, I think things have changed uh, over the years. I mean, 100 years ago, sort of cutting-edge science and technology that was, you know, sheltered away in a lab somewhere, you really couldn't get to it. The coming of the digital age... When all these data now are just numbers, which means they can be reproduced exactly, and with the Internet, which means they can be distributed to every person on the planet in a moment, well, that's changed everything. Everybody has access to the latest in technology and science. That's
2: new. Well, coming up... Problem that is new to the computer age, but has been around ever since we've had computers.
3: Never mind protecting yourself from alien computer hackers. Can you simply stop unwanted eyes from perusing your email? A
2: security expert says it's hard to do. It's Gene Hackman from Big Picture Science.
4: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
3: Welcome back to Big Picture Science. We're looking at hackers of both genes and computers. There are some formidable threats out there. Worrying about misuse of genetic information to build terrifying microbial weapons, possibly even worrying about an alien hack attack on our computers. But aside from these existential threats, there remains a very prosaic worry. What about hacking into our personal computers? I mean, just how easy is it for prying eyes to scan my
2: email? Dan Kaminsky is a security expert, and although there's been recent news about governments and other officials tapping into private emails, that's at a level that's pretty high. Most of us don't have the CIA peering into our correspondence, but then it doesn't need to be Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy.
4: Well, you know, the most likely hacker, quote-unquote, to actually try to read your email are people that you know, your employers, your employees, your significant others, to be perfectly honest. You know, what generally happens, to be f- utterly frank, what generally happens is that you're... Laptop is left out, someone walks up to the laptop, and person just can't resist. They click login, and then they, quote, unquote, accidentally see everything.
3: But but that's like leaving your wallet around. I mean, that's, you know, I don't consider that so much a security threat as being careless. Am I vulnerable to people that I don't know?
4: let Let me stick to this for a second.
3: When you leave your
4: wallet out, if someone takes money, you can tell. If someone rifles through your email and reads a bunch of it, you don't know. There's no logs. In fact, the systems are actually optimized to make sure you don't find out. You know, it's not like you get these big, complicated logs that tell you, oh, yes, at this time, this email was read on this computer. No, they don't do any of that. They do a bare minimum amount of reporting because, A, there's a huge amount of email being read, and, B, n- no one wants you to know. when you just keep using the systems?
3: But still, I, I'm not sure that if i'm careful to close up my laptop and take it with me am i still you know liable to have prying eyes doing some prying so the important thing to
4: realize is that most people are really boring and no one no one actually wants to read your email there're basically three classes of attackers the first class is the person that you know and they're generally just using physical access to your device the second class is law enforcement. And let's face it, law enforcement can get into pretty much every email provider just by asking some degree of nicely. The third class is where you have shared passwords, shared credentials. Websites get broken into, a whole bunch of passwords are grabbed, and then people go ahead and they break into accounts um, because the same password is on Facebook as is on Gmail, as is on whatever. There's a particular class of this vulnerability where you know, you have to consider what happens when you forget your password. When you forget your password on pretty much any site on the internet, you get an email. It says, "Oh, you know, I forgot my password, you know, click this link and you get back in." If your email account's broken into, every other site can now be broken into as well. We call this lily padding as hackers. You hop from system to system to system hopefully getting to the one system that everything else trusts. Everything tends to trust your email account. So if you're sharing your email account's password with any other site and another site gets broken into, people can then log into your email and get into everything else you have access to.
3: So this sounds like uh, the first line of defense is to use different passwords for every account, which sounds like such an owner's burden. It might be better if they just read my email.
4: We have totally failed to deliver uh, authentication in a way that anyone can handle. <laughs> Passwords are awful. And it's turned into this game of 20 questions. You know, what kind of things do I need to put in this password so the website will accept it? Are there enough punctuation? Are there enough numbers? It's, you know, yeah. it's because the bigger a pain in the butt it is, the more people think it must make them safe. And though there's elements of truth here, it's kind of gotten out of control. We desperately need better ways to prove our identities to resources on the Internet.
3: Well, what about the cases that you occasionally read about in the papers when somebody hacks into the Pentagon? I mean, presumably they're not doing that by just finding an open laptop.
4: Now, that is true. It is absolutely the case that there's a population of very skilled attackers that writes very ornate attacks against very hard targets. Um, What I want to be clear about is that this is not always necessary. The ability to break into stuff is not something that requires state-level skill. But when you do need
3: that, what do they need? I mean, are these, you know, PhDs in computer science? Who are the people that do this?
4: Depends. Generally, there are two classes of targets. One class of target is the desktop information technology infrastructure. So you have to be able to understand the actual software of web browsers, of PDF readers, of Flash plugins. You have to be able to look inside the computer code, the machine language that the computer is actually running, and see, oh, okay, if I provide this particular input, it's not going to show a picture, it's not going to show some words, it's going to make a mess of itself. And when it makes a mess of itself... I now have an opportunity to take it over. And this is a particular field. It's a, we call it memory corruption. Your software has some degree of memory where everything is nicely arranged. What if it wasn't? Well, maybe it's not arranged like it's supposed to be. It's arranged like the bad guy wants. But there's a second class where you attack the web infrastructure. On your desktop, you tend to have the same software everywhere. On the web, there's a huge amount of custom code. Uh, individual groups that write their own web pages make their own frameworks build their own systems and these systems are not as universally common as say the software on your desktop but they fail in the same ways over and over and over again so the web attacks are actually a lot easier to do because even though the software is a lot less common you know boutique or bespoke it's written very quickly. It is not particularly tested for security often. And it's hard to build secure web pages.
3: So we're all using these same tools. We're all vulnerable. I'm sure nobody likes it. Is this going to get fixed at some point in the same way that in the early days of computer software, the, the people who wrote the software were having their stuff being stolen all the time because it was so easy to copy and distribute you know, without paying anybody? But that got fixed. Is this going to get fixed? Is the general level of security going to get better in a way where I don't have to memorize 150 passwords?
4: (laughs) Uh, Well, I think that we will definitely get better ways to prove your identity to online resources. That's going to happen because the password system is in utter collapse. But one of the really interesting limiting factors to computer security is, for the most part, nobody dies. Now you'd think this would be a good thing because dead bodies are, you know, problematic, but you'd be shocked at how much policy comes from the fact that when people die, their families are unhappy and demand change in policy to do something about it. The main reason we're able to iterate so fast in computer software, not even security, just in software, is the consequences of being a bad engineer are, Ignorable it doesn't matter if your code crashes whatever you know we'll go make another version no one dies And so we this is why so much innovation has happened in the internet space because you can just try stuff and it doesn't matter Well security and actually privacy as well are making a lot of these things matter It's making flaws in software a thing that is increasingly expensive Still, people are not dying, and there are exceptions, but as the joke goes, far more people die because they crash through a window than because windows crashed.
3: Dan, when you read stories about genetics or genetic engineering, uh, genome sequencing, do you think of these stories in computer terms, computer science terms?
4: It's just code, 01 versus ACTG. I mean, uh, it turns out we are made of information. I actually uh, ended up doing a fairly extensive genetics project around, of all things, colorblindness. First of all, figuring out how to correct for colorblindness. And second of all, actually looking at the genetic basis of why people are colorblind. And effectively, there's a couple of genes, like literally a couple of letters switch from C to G or from T to, to A. So on the one hand, we are made of information. On the other hand, we write code, we fix code, we patch code, we understand code, we are code. That's what we are. We didn't intend any of this, we didn't design any of this. The complexity of the genome is not constrained by the human ability to comprehend. And while software can get pretty complicated, it's nothing compared to the bizarre tricks that nature has evolved to get things done. There's no coherent design. It's just there. And the things that didn't work didn't continue.
3: Dan Kaminsky, thank you so much for talking to me, and I hope nobody was eavesdropping.
4: <laughs> it was a great time. Let me know if I can ever help you later.
2: Dan Kaminsky is chief scientist of the security firm DHK. DHK <laughs>
3: Molly, do you ever uh, leave your laptop on when you walk away for a few
2: minutes to get a lunch? Always. Really? Always. Sure. But at some point, the screensaver comes on, and then you have to type in a password to get back into it. All right. But that might be 10 minutes later or something like that. I mean,
3: you you don't worry about this.
2: I don't even think about it, no.
3: Yeah. I, I mean, I found it was interesting that the real threat is not from, you know, the evil big government. The real threat is the guy in the
2: next cube or your relatives. And also the point that he made is you can't tell. Like, you could tell if someone came up and took money out of your wallet had you left your wallet out or your purse out. But, you know, you don't know if someone has been reading your email.
3: That's an incredibly impressive point, I have to say, because I'd never thought about that. Whether someone has read my email or not, is just not something I can tell by looking at my email account. Anyone could have read it. And then the question is,
2: will you know if someone has tapped into your genome?
3: Well, why would they want to do that? I mean, I can understand the motivation for the president, but for me? <laughs>
2: Thanks to our cracking production staff who are not hacks, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also,
3: support from Rena shulsky David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our
2: listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Gene Hackman. and I highly recommend the conversation, the movie that he was in, that we introduced the show with. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through a link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to facebook and become a fan of the program you can leave your comments there as well
3: if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over the air radio because your dna resonates at the frequency of your local fm station check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program and if your local station is not on that list consider letting them know you like the program